Well, welcome listeners. This is Alan Karbelnig. It's been, oh, at least a year since I did one of these, and I have a weekly Substack newsletter called Journeys to the Unconscious Mind, on which I can attach uh, my podcast. So this is going to be number eight out of a series of 10 on the top 10 ideas in psychoanalysis. And this section is going to be on developmental psychoanalysis. Sadly, it may be one of the areas that I know the least about. Um, But I think I can give you an earful and particularly for those of you that are beginning clinicians, hopefully teach you something new and for you more experienced ones or even folks just interested in the field, uh, I'm hoping I can offer quite a bit. Uh, Let's see, since I haven't done this for a while, I'm a psychologist and psychoanalyst practicing individual couple uh, psychotherapy in the Pasadena area. Been doing that for about 40 years, uh, which is strange because I'm only 32. And um, uh, I also do a little bit of forensic psychology, which is not at all relevant to these talks. I do think there's a ton of redundancy in psychoanalysis. Um, if the, those of you that decide to dive into the field are certain to find that, um, there's an idea that Brandshaft has, for example, called pathological accommodation, which got a lot of press maybe 15, 20 years ago. And that's basically a fair barren idea And a number of psychoanalysts have the same idea, which has to do with uh, the way children, if they're neglected in some way, will um, uh, accommodate to the wishes of their parents. Uh, Jacques Lacan's idea that your very identity is formed around the, the desires of your parents or the caregiver is a similar concept. And... It makes my top 10 list somewhere because uh, remember, it's not that you want to grow up to be like your parents. So this isn't really about modeling. Um, it's more about that you, um, you, you get a sense for what their desires are and then you want to be, uh, you want them to desire you So I remember having a fairly neglectful, uh, highly narcissistic and anxious mother, but she was interested in humor and in intelligence. I I have a pretty early memory, I'd say four or five of making her laugh in some way. And some part of my mind went ding, 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 that's it, that's it. You know, that's how you get the attention. And I think you listeners get the point. I'm assuming now, so this whole section is going to be about how you go from an infant to a consenting adult, one of my favorite phrases. Um, And let me start with Freud. I don't even know if I have the stages memorized, but you know it's oral, anal, latency. I might be skipping something there, and then it's phallic. Uh, But the key thing to remember in his developmental model is you go from the world of dyads to the world of triads and beyond. And the the Oedipal phase is terribly misunderstood. It's not about having one and a half sex with your same 
gender parent. It's about coping with this crisis when you are, oh, somewhere between eight and 14 months and you, you well, you really don't develop object constancy till about 18 months, but it's before that period that you realize, wow, these parents of mine, assuming you have two, but it doesn't really matter because your caregiver is almost certainly gonna lock you out in some fashion. The metaphor I generally use in teaching is that uh, your parents go into the bedroom, lock the door, uh, and you're locked out and you feel frightened. Uh, and so there's a tendency to cling to one or the other parent as a way of navigating this transition. And um, uh, the, the navigation looks like uh, you're able to handle siblings, you're able to, during the latency period, enter the world of elementary school friendships where they become just as important to you as your original familial relationships. But if you're, if you're delayed um, in that uh, period, uh, you can develop uh, psychotic or borderline personality features. And think about it, those folks really have trouble dealing with triadic or beyond relationships. So they'll get in a romantic relationship, for example, and they will uh, be prone to feel pathologically jealous um, and they'll be very uncomfortable with their man or their woman's uh, good friends because they feel threatened by them. Uh, that, in my view, is the best way to think about the Oedipal complex. And now you're going to notice a lot of similarities as I go across these uh, various models. Um, so Klein, I talked about her extensively in some of the earlier top 10 lectures, but her develop model, development model is complex, not as Fairbairn has the simplest one, but it basically just has these two stages, paranoid schizoid, which is up to about three or four months of age, and that's characterized by primitive defense mechanisms of splitting and projective identification. So normal for the infant is the so-called qualitative split, uh, uh, managing all this overwhelming internal and external stimuli into sets, piles of good and bad categories, if you will. Somewhere I read there's even a neuropsychological explanation for that. And then right around uh, three to six months when the baby realizes, well, that bad mother is the same as the good mother and the bad me is the same as the good me, a crisis begins that then lasts our entire life. And that is uh, the crisis of, oh my God, this is the same uh, person. Um, and that's the beginning of the so-called depressive phase uh, because it is depressing in a way to realize uh, that your capacity to idealize others or yourself can come crashing down when you face reality. Uh, Freud had a brilliant idea. He called it um, ordinary disappointment, which is when you realize the new car that you bought, the new office you moved into, the new relationship that you have is going to have 
flaws in all of those things I just mentioned, that would be one way of understanding what is meant by the depressive position. That continues throughout the lifespan. And in one of Klein's later works, uh, Envy and Gratitude, she talks about how maturity is really the process of integrating loving and hating feelings um, uh, in your own mind in a way that's manageable. Um, so where the overlap is between Freud and Klein is the so-called pre-Oedipal child is basically the same as the child uh, with too much identification in the paranoid schizoid position. You'll notice how she brilliant, brilliantly called them positions rather than stages, because it's important to have, uh, let's say, one or two of your 10 toes in paranoid schizoid functioning, or else you would never enjoy life. You would always, uh, you would not be able to fantasize about a weekend coming up because uh, any fantasy like that involves idealization. Um, okay, uh, and then uh, you transition into the depressive position. And as that progresses, um, you basically are into the Oedipal and beyond, where again, you're able to manage triadic relationships and beyond. Uh, Michael Ballant, the middle school theorist, talks a lot about uh, the area of the one person, the area of the two person, the area of the three people and beyond. Um, I remember a couple years ago I gave a talk on, I was on a panel about monogamy versus polyamory. It was a very interesting panel. I had a friend and colleague representing the polyamorous position. I know one of my tenuous arguments would be that monogamy is a way to regress into the primary mother-infant bond. In fact, leaving the order here a little bit, uh, I thought Fairbairn very brilliantly said, sexual activity is the adult equivalent of baby mouth on baby breast. Uh, my colleague, Ryan Witherspoon, who was talking about polyamory said, oh, you can still achieve that with multiple partners. He didn't disagree with that fundamental idea. He just disagreed with the idea of sort of a systematic uh, monogamy. But I digress, as I am so prone to do. Fairbairn has my favorite model. There's infantile dependency, transition, and then mature dependency. Uh, now, you may never get out of transition. He would tend to think that you go through all of those stages before you're maybe six or seven years old. And then, of course, mature dependency takes a long time to settle into. Uh, when I lecture in other settings about mature dependency, I talk about it simply in terms of diversifying your investment portfolio. You start life with just the one set of parents. And usually there is a primary caregiver, mother, father, aunt, nanny, whoever it might be. And then you uh, transition into having friends, family, uh, siblings, parents, if they're still alive, children who uh, are your close circle. And I think what's really important about Fairbairn's contribution is he correctly notes, uh, emphasizes, I should say, 
that there's really no such thing as independence. We're dependent on the air and the water and shelter, food, etc. We're also socially dependent, except for the less than 1% of you in the world that are psychopaths. And the idea would be that a maturely dependent person knows when they have a sharp pain in their side that lingers, they need to contact a physician or go to urgent care. And it's not any diminishment. Uh, it is normal to be dependent. It is adult and mature to be dependent. Not a good idea to be infantile dependency. So Fairbairn's infantile dependency would be the same as Klein's paranoid schizoids and Freud's oral or anal stages. Uh, another interesting uh, theme that runs across those three theorists is uh, the lack of morality in the pre-Oedipal paranoid schizoid infantile dependency phase. And here's where you get the redundancy I mentioned early in the podcast. Um, uh, you're not moral. You're you're not without morals because you're a bad person, but there's no capacity to uh, conceptualize another mind, and therefore the realm of ethics only begins during the transition period. If you're Fairbairn, during a, a depressive position, if you're Fairbairn, and only in the Oedipal and post periods, according to Freud, I'm going to take a helpful side journey now because I just recently learned this uh, conceptualization by Hegel, the German philosopher who was writing in the, oh, I think early 1800s. I'm not sure about that. Um, but he had this brilliant idea. He, he used the phrase self-consciousness, which would mean when you come into awareness of yourself, uh, he talks about how you assume that your beliefs, values, uh, power configurations, um, view of the world is the way everyone thinks. And ethics begins, of course, when you encounter another self-consciousness, again, using Hegel's terminology, and uh, you realize, oh my, that other self-consciousness has his or her own sets of values, beliefs, power configurations, and viewpoints. Um, I struggled with this phrase of his because he has the phrase, then it is the wrestling unto death. I think I just misread, re, misread death as meaning uh, like there would be a wrestling uh, like a physical wrestling. I'm quite sure, but I need to check this myself, so please feel free to check this. I think he's referring to that in any intimate, intersubjective relationship, I think of my many decade relationship with my own wife, there is a constant negotiation going on, sometimes minute to minute, definitely hour to hour. She's out uh, visiting my mother-in-law as I as I uh, dictate this this podcast right this moment, uh, we negotiated a rough time she'd be back and a rough time we'd go out to dinner. It can be exhausting sometime. Um, 
a lot of my practices with couples, actually about half of it, and I'll, I'll often bring up with them an effective couple is one where you have Joe uh, as fulfilled as possible, Sally as fulfilled as possible, and this mysterious entity of the third, that is the relationship between Joe and uh, Sally uh, equally um, uh, thriving. And, but to have, and side point, side point to my Hegelian side point, uh, you tend to see couples where uh, they've either, like one set of them is they don't really have enough of an independent life. And uh, the couple is where they spend all their time and conflicts emerge out of that. Another common variation is where they have overly created individual lives and the couple's life is not very uh, established or uh, fulfilling or thriving and you know where the work lies. Um, I'm just not that well trained in Jungian psychoanalysis, but I will tell you that he is the guy that deserves tons of credit in my mind for proposing that the very idea of individuation is an inborn instinct to my knowledge, the modern attachment theorists would adhere to that in that there is a force in us that requires attachment, but also is in dialectical opposition uh, in all of our relationships to, to use the Abraham Maslow word, to self-actualize. So there's a, a, a dynamic tension or a definitely a Jungian phrase and another example of redundancy, uh, the tension of the opposites is one of his phrases between, I want to be attached, I need others, I have mature dependency, but I really also want to develop myself as fully as possible. And that's sadly the, the um, sum of my knowledge as far as Jungian developmental psychology goes. I recommend to all of you listeners a philosopher that hardly anybody knows about. Um, his name is Ken Wilbur. He never really held an academic position. Uh, last name is spelled um, W-I-L-B-E-R. He's written tons of books published by Shambhala. I'm looking at one right now published in the year 2000 that's called Integral psychology in the subtitle is Consciousness, Spirit, Psychology, Therapy. He has these charts like in that book, the charts begin uh, at 197, that, that talk about development in an in a all-encompassing way that really everything I've lectured about today about Freud, Klein, Fairbairn, and Jung uh, is encompassed within this. Uh, I noticed this one page I have open here does deal with Kohlberg, who any of you that got academic psychology training had some exposure to Kohlberg's uh, theory of moral development that uh, begins with uh, you, you behave because you don't want to be punished, and then it transitions into you behave well because you... Uh, are seeking the approval of others, and uh, the the highest level in his system is the universal ethical principle. 
<clears throat> of course, I lose my voice when I run out of the juice I was relying upon. <clears throat> what I find so compelling about Wilbur is he actually begins with... Um, I just lost my... Oh, good. I, my computer went on its um, screensaver, and I couldn't tell if I was still recording. He begins with matter in his developmental stages. Uh, he then goes into sensation, perception, impulse, emotion, image, symbol. Uh, he matches it up with... Um, um, blocking on the guy's name, the Swiss Piaget, the cognitive uh, um, developmental stages of sensory motor, where and then you go to formal reasoning, and then you go to post-formal. Um, I notice Wilbur goes into <clears throat> archetypes, which, of course, is part of the Jungian model. And his his charts end with non-duality, which is definitely incorporating the spiritual dimension from an Eastern point of view, but there's no reason for it to be Eastern because non-duality means, uh, and this is something I remember from learning about Vedanta philosophy, the Vedanta branch of Buddhism holds that it is absurd that we identify ourselves as existing within these sacks of skin, which is the way we in the Western world are socialized, because in actual reality, uh, you deprive us of food or water, even for a brief period of time, I think. Well, let's take air. I think it's four or five minutes. Water, I think you can last at least three days. I mean, at most three days without water. Um, but you could have your arm surgically amputated and you'd be fine. So isn't it strange that we identify ourselves, I do, as existing within this sack of skin or even most of the time behind my eyeballs when it's a completely irrational, non-logical way to identify it, would, it is more logical for me to consider food air water particularly air when i think about my identity and non-duality which wilbur would consider the highest level of development is when you pass through the world there is no other they're the same as you there is no matter it is the same as you um I think you might have to meditate uh, two hours a day for 30 years to get to that point. But um, I highly recommend Wilbur for the fact that he encompasses everything I mentioned in terms of psychoanalytic theory today. And in bringing my, uh, my horse-ridden H-A-O-R-S-E presentation to an end, I've developed my own little model that um, all of us, patients and non-patients alike, um, have some combination of five 
possible problems conflict, deficit, neuropsychiatric abnormality like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, trauma, or developmental delay. And I, I highlight the last one because that's what this entire presentation is about today, which is what developmental psychoanalysis is about. And the way it ties into doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy is you will quickly identify in patients, oh, this is a very mature individual who's got some chronic unmet need states, that would be the deficit realm, and is mostly in a state of conflict. Should I stay with my husband or not? Should I stay with this job or not? There wouldn't be much of a developmental delay, at least in the case example that just came out of my mouth uh, to deal with. When you're talking about any of the nine personality disorders, there is almost always a developmental delay involved. And another way you would think about them, or if you were to talk to a colleague about a referral you were gonna make, or if you had to write up a psychodynamic formulation, would be that you could use any of these models I presented, or even one of Ken Wilber ones, Ken Wilber's ones, to talk about, huh, this is a person who's also struggling with uh, quite a bit of paranoid schizoid uh, position functioning quite a bit of infantile dependency that has an adverse effect on their relationships. Well, in search of fluid now, I'm going to bring this to a close. I thank you so much for your interest. Um, I'm kind of just a nobody in the world of psychoanalysis, but I am interested in uh, bringing to people, I consider myself sort of the union organizer of psychoanalysis uh, published a paper in February of 2022 about clinical pluralism, who I'm a big believer in. There cannot be any overarching theory. And I'd say that these top 10 lectures are, are delivered in that same spirit of, hey, looking back on the 120-year history of psychoanalysis, there really are only about 10 ideas, and then you could riff on them for a thousand more years. Thank you very much. Peace be with you, and that is the end of this lecture.